Hi, welcome to the podcast lecture that corresponds to socio-political art. So these three artworks, every year I always have trouble teaching because they don't necessarily connect to um, other artworks well. They're just so different. But one thing that does unify these artworks together um, is that they all have very strong social or political um, layers of meaning. So I thought that would really emphasize the nature of these artworks. So I put them together this year for you guys to study. Um, make sure you guys are in the Google slide presentation. If you did not watch the little tutorial on how to access this, you're gonna have a hard time. Um, I do recommend doing this from your computer and then make sure you follow the steps to kind of maximize the screen. Um, I wanted to make sure this presentation scrolled because I wanted to try that method. I thought it would be helpful but it does take a, like about a minute to kind of set it up to where you need to be. So if you haven't done that yet, why don't you do that now? Um, look on PowerSchool and view that and then come back and listen to this. All right, let's go ahead and get started. So the results of the first five-year plan is a photo montage by a female Russian artist named Varvara Stepanova. And so photo montage has its beginnings in the modern period. Dada artists were actually some of the first artists to create these like assemblages of newspapers and photos. Um, but photo montage does become something that is seen as well connected to like political art. And so really this is what comes before Photoshop. Right now you guys should be in the part of the site that says photo montage notes. Sorry, I didn't indicate that earlier. I'll kind of clue you guys in through the kind of titles I have on the text boxes in this presentation. So after the First World War, artists in Germany and the Soviet Union really became the first artists to experiment with photomontage. So what a photomontage is, is when you juxtapos juxtaposition or mount two or more photos in order to create an illusion that you're looking at one photo. So the way it differs from collage is collage doesn't hide the fact that it's a collage. Collage is intended to be kind of like scattered and random, but when it comes to photo montage, it should give you the impression that you're looking at one photo. So like in person, you would see that this is seamless, where in person, a collage, you could really see like all the edges and things like that. So anyways, a photo montage can include more than just photographs. It can include text, words, and even newspaper clippings as we're looking at right here. So for centuries, Russia had been an absolute monarchy that was ruled by a czar. But between 1905 and 1922, there was tremendous change, um, the result of two world wars. There was a civil war, there was World War I. There was a series of uprisings that culminated with the October Revolution. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics was established in 1922 under Lenin, who you see in this image. Russia was a young communist state, and this was celebrated by many artists and intellectuals who saw communism as kind of like a beacon of hope, something that could help take Russia out of its longstanding corruption and extreme poverty, which seemed to be defining characteristics for Russia. So the Russian avant-garde movement had experimented with new forms of art like photomontage for decades. And the reason that the photomontage became a favorite technique was because it gave them a lot of options. It gave them a way to infuse new technology, the photograph, with art making forms. Stepanova um, 
was a talented painter, designer, and photographer. She defined herself as a constructivist and focused her art on serving the ideals of the new Soviet Union. She was a leading member of Russian avant-garde in her later career, um, and she also was known for her contributions to a USSR magazine called In Construction. And what that publication was, we'll take a look at it in a moment, was basically a publication that focused on the industrialization of the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. Um, Stalin was a ruthless dictator who took power after Lenin's death and whose policies are thought to have caused suffering and death for millions of people. So go ahead and scroll down to Art as Propaganda. It's a text box on the left and you'll see a copy of the USSR in construction on the right along with a photo of Stepanova. So the public targeted by USSR in construction was mostly foreign. So the purpose of the magazine was to show great nations such as France and Great Britain that the USSR was also a leading global superpower in terms of the global market and the economy. By choosing to include images rather than just text, the public would be able to see with their very own eyes the achievements that um, Russia was able to achieve under Stalin. At first, the subjects depicted were strictly industrial, but as the magazine gained recognition and grew to expand its audience, topics diversified. And so some other topics in the magazine included sports and leisure. Soviet strategists were well aware that many European countries were witnessing a small rise of devoted communists, despite the fact that globally, communism had this kind of mistrust sentiment um, around it. And there was even contempt worldwide towards um, communism, especially with social and political elite. So as the title suggests, this photo montage is an ode to the success of the first five-year plan, an initiative started by Stalin in 1928. The plan was a list of strategic goals designed to grow the Soviet economy and accelerate its industrialization. These goals included collective farming, creating a military and artillery industry, and also increasing steel production. By the end of the first five-year plan in 1933, the USSR was successful. They did transform into a leading industrial power. Though it is worth noting that contemporary historians have found that economists from the USSR at this time actually inflated the results in order to serve as propaganda, essentially, to support the image of the Soviet Union being more powerful. So in this work of art, Stepanova has used the tools of a propagandist. The photo montage is an ideological image that was intended to help establish, through visual evidence, the success of the first five-year plan. Okay, why don't you scroll down to constructing the image? You're not taking any, any notes here, um, but I did annotate certain parts of the image, and then I want you to draw your eye to those images. So in Stepanova's photo montage, everything is carefully constructed. The artist only uses three types of color and tone, which you can easily see here. She alternates between black and white sepia photographs, um, an example of a sepia photograph would be at the bottom left, you can see a yellow dot. Sepia is kind of like a brownish, a grayish brownish tone photograph. And then you can see the black and white photograph on the right as indicated by the green dot. And so I wouldn't say it's perfectly seamless, but if you kind of look at where these two photographs join, 
um, you can see where she's layered them together. Another thing she's included was she's integrated geometric planes of red to structure the composition. So you can see a line on the left. I also put a light blue color dot on the right corner just to draw your attention. But I'm sure your attention is already drawn to like the brightness of that flat red color. On the left, Stepanova has also inserted public address speakers on a platform with the number five. So I put an orange dot um, on one of those speakers. So they look like kind of like trumpet horns. When I hear speaker, I look for like a box or I look for something more rectilinear. But here what we have is something that just kind of looks like a horn. And so you see two of those. Now directly beneath that orange dot, you can see the number five in red, which is symbolizing the five-year plan. Um, you can also see, kind of in between those two speakers, the letters CCCP. I know the ending letter looks like a D, but it's intended to be a P. I have those underlined in a pink dotted line. And those letters are significant because it's the Russian initials for the USSR. The letters are placed above the horizon um, as is a portrait of Lenin, the founder of the Soviet Union. So we kind of have this like diagonal horizon line. Um, it starts with that left um, red diagonal line beneath the speakers, and it kind of just moves across the plane of the painting to the right corner. And so we have a large image of Lenin. He's the founder of the communist Soviet Union. And basically what we're looking at is a cropped image of Lenin He's oversized. This should kind of make you think about what we talked about earlier in the earth art history, where anytime something is intended to be emphasized or artists are trying to display importance or prominence or status, a figure is enlarged. I mean, that's definitely something we saw in ancient Near East when we looked at things like the standard of Ur or the victory stele of Naram Sin. You always know who's important because they're the largest in an artwork. And we definitely see that here. So Lenin is linked to the speakers that I just pointed out on the left side of the painting. Or sorry, it's easier for me to say paintings. We've been talking about so many paintings. Um, he's linked in this photo montage by um, these wires um, that we have kind of in the center of the photo montage. So you can see kind of the wires moving from the left side of his face all the way towards those speakers. So that's supposed to suggest that like his message is coming out of those speakers. Um, everything's connected through that electrical transmission tower that you can see to his left. Below Lenin, we see crowds in celebration, those sepia photographs, those black and white photographs that are part of this photo montage, and they're celebrating. They're celebrating Lenin. They're celebrating whatever message is being um, released through these speakers. It's intended to be a message that this photo montage is intended to create this elevated message of something positive happening. So red, which is the color of the Soviet flag and, and many people associate with um, communism is often in Stepanova's images. So you can go ahead and you can scroll a little bit down to everything in art is intentional. And that's a phrase, once again, back from the beginning of the year, because we know that in art, um, unless we're dealing with surrealism, nothing is really supposed to be spontaneous or unplanned. Things have meaning. Everything you're looking at here represents a choice. And so back to that color red, the color of the Soviet flag, um, Stepanova is using a color that visually represents communism. 
She also, in her photo montages, commonly mismatched the scale of photographic elements, not only to create emphasis, but also to create a sense of dynamism and movement in her images. Despite the flat paper format, different elements are visually activated and kind of seem like they they pop out. Um, And she does this by creating several clear artistic oppositions that are visible in this photo montage. So for example, on the detail I gave you of the photo montage, there is a sharp contrast between the black and white photographs and the red elements, which you can see in the area of the artwork that I've presented. Um, There's also a sharp contrast between the electric tower, the color red with the white behind it. There is a sharp contrast between the red number five. Um, So there's just a lot of elements here that overall create contrast. And when things contrast, um, even in a class like AP Lang, when we talk about opposing elements and contrast, what happens is it makes things more obvious because they don't necessarily belong together. They emphasize each other um, as a result. And so we have lots of references here to the Soviet political system. We have a dynamic surface, and she's definitely created a lot of moments that, that catch our eye. Okay, you can go ahead and scroll down to manipulating reality. So as the term photo montage suggests, images are combined and manipulated to express the message that an artist wants to convey. So this photo montage celebrates the results of the first five-year plan, and it basically shows... Stepanova's own interpretation of events under the strict supervision of party, basically members of the Communist Party. So the plan resulted in radical measures that forced farmers to give up their lands and their livestock. Many people were reduced to extreme poverty, and in Russia, famine became widespread during this time. Terror, violence, and fear replaced the initial optimism that the Russians had about the plan. What started out as positive propaganda became, little by little, a means to hide a disastrous economic policy from the rest of the world. Remember, what Lenin is trying to do is prove that Russia is a superpower. And whether that's through inflated numbers um, or manipulated information, now art is almost working in that same way too. Art is kind of serving as some type of evidence that good things are happening at Russia at this time. So it became really essential for the state to make sure and project a pristine image of society, no matter how dire the situation had become. For me personally, it kind of reminds me when you hear stories about North Korea, where we know that many people in North Korea are living in poverty um, and they're lacking human necessities. But when you see North Korean leaders um, in the media, Um, they're always trying to project this image that everybody's happy, everybody's safe, happy, and successful. So you can kind of liken that experience to what we're looking at here. Although Stepanova worked hand-in-hand with the Soviet government, her work shows great personal creativity. Her use of vibrant color, her striking images, her choice to arrange all these elements in a dynamic composition. It really makes her stand out as a pioneer of photo montage, and it revolutionizes the way that we understand photography. It takes photography to another place where, remember, photography begins as a scientific tool, capture truth, capture observation. Artists begin to use the photo to kind of express something artistically, 
artists begin to crop photos like Stieglitz with the steerage to create a specific image, an idea they want to convey. Now we've progressed to a point where we have an artist combining images to take multiple separate images and present them as one view. And so a photo montage like this, even though we have a sophisticated understanding on what's real and what is an image in media, it's an important reminder of how artists can blur the line between aesthetic passion and ideology. Okay, if you could scroll down so that you're looking at a black and white photograph of the artist Jacob Lawrence, and then you have a variety of images um, in the screen, so I'll take some time to go through them. Um, the ones that are kind of beneath that photo we're going to address in a little bit here. So right now you should be taking notes under the title piece that says a masterpiece made at age 23. So Jacob Lawrence is hailed as an artist that was able to capture social realism, to capture the experience of African-Americans who made the move from the rural South to the urban North in the 1910s and 1920s. Lawrence completed this series in 1941, where he chronicled that mass exodus, where over 1 million African-Americans made that move. The reason for the movement there was better job opportunities in the North, in those urban areas. And basically, one of the biggest pieces of technology that we've talked about with modernism, the train, enabled that to happen. It enabled a lot of people to be able to move. And what African Americans were fleeing from in the South is they were fleeing from oppressive Jim Crow laws and hoping for a better life in the North. So Lawrence completed this very ambitious historical project in his Harlem neighborhood when he was 23 years old. And Jacob Lawrence is part of the Harlem Renaissance. So think of like jazz music, um, a lot of kind of cultural renaissance of sorts of African-Americans in America in the 40s. So he painted this with basically modest like tempera paint. Tempera paint isn't really considered to be like a high fine art at this time, more like oil paint would be. Um, once oil paint is introduced, that became becomes typically like a, you know, elevated form of painting. Tempera would be considered something a little bit more humble and modest. All the panels are the same size, 12 by 18 inches, although some are in portrait view and some are in landscape. They all have those same dimensions. So the series begins with a group of African-Americans leaving by south um, on the train. And then their departure upends Southern Black communities, who basically have members of communities who are, who are thinking and reflecting and maybe in anguish over whether they should make that journey too. More migrants eventually decide to go north, where they face new freedoms and new forms of discrimination. And that's what this series really highlights. Some people describe this series as Jacob Lawrence having a very good sense of choreography, um, in this series, meaning that there's kind of like a cinematic quality to this, like the story ebbs and flows from panel to panel, much like storyboards in a film. Lawrence thought very carefully about how to progress from one image to another. And all of this kind of reminds us of the backdrop of jazz, um, maybe what he was taking in at the Apollo Theater at this time, let's say. So the first panel, which we'll take a look at in a moment, 
is like the beginning of the story. And then this proceeds through 60 panels. Each panel has a caption um, and a title. And that gives information about like the direction of the story. So why don't you go ahead and advance to, um, to, a, to the screen in a way that you can see the four images that I've labeled 1, 11, 38, and 50. So sorry they're a little out of order, but I was trying to like fill the screen space as best as I possibly could. Okay, so what I wanted to do was to highlight some moments of the panel so that you can see this ebb and flow of kind of like elements that move the story forward, um, things that evoke something more expressive, expressive and emotional, things that show like the hardship, things that show the opportunity. It's a story that's bittersweet. It's full of ups, it's full of downs, but in a way that's very much the reality of this experience for African-Americans. So if you look at the um, image labeled one, that panel was titled, During the World War, There Was a Great Migration North by Southern Negroes. So in that, you can see that Lawrence is using a very simplified style. The figures are not depicted in a natural way. In a way, they almost look um, anonymous because the figures aren't individualized. They're just kind of shown as a cast of characters existing together. Now you can see that there is a great migration because we see a great crowd and they're moving through um, three areas at the railway station. Some are going to Chicago, some are going to New York, and some are going to St. Louis. So these would be things that are recognized as, or places recognized as urban centers of industry where, as I mentioned earlier, African-Americans from the South are lured by the prospect of being able to have a good job. Now let's move to the right in the panel that's kind of in portrait. Um, that's number 11. And the caption for this, and remember these captions were determined by Jacob Lawrence, in many places because of the war, food had doubled in price. So you can see, um, for me, the most striking piece why I chose this, I thought this was incredibly like heart-wrenching. You can see a child um, looking up at his mother at a table. It's kind of hard to tell what she's doing, but you can see his eyes like wide open and he's staring directly at her and it just kind of pulls at your heartstrings to think about hunger and poverty, especially in the context of family and children. And so um, this panel really stood out to me as showing you guys in this moment. Then look at 38. 38 was titled... They also worked in large numbers on the railroad. And this one's a little different because we don't have physical figures of people in this image. What we do have is an image of work happening on the railway. You can see a railway tie. Um, it looks like a railroad is being constructed and that would be connected to, you know, the opportunity that moving north provided for African-Americans. And then image 50 I selected because it shows the hardship and it shows the different kinds of discrimination that African-Americans face in these urban areas. So 50 reads, race riots were very numerous all over the North because many of the antagonism that was caused between the Negro and white workers. Many of these riots occurred because the Negro was used as a strike breaker in many of the Northern industries. So when strikes were happening, instead of increasing benefits for union workers, African-American workers would be called in to take their place to work for cheaper rates. And so this definitely created um, a lot of chaos, a lot of inequity in society. And so what you see is an image of a man getting beat. So 
if you want to look at more of these images, I did link um, the highlighted area. Um, Museum of Modern Art in New York does have an interactive exhibit where you can look at all 50 of the panels. And, you know, it's... I don't want to call it a beautiful story because I think when you say that about a story, you expect like a happy, satisfying outcome. That's not what you get from his series. But there's something about the simplicity, um, the directness, um, the sincerity of this series that really like kind of ties you in. And so you might want to take a look at that. All right, next you can scroll down. You're going to be looking at a video. So to look at the video, you basically just tap play. It should play for you in your screen as you see it. And then you're going to be taking notes to the right. If you need to press pause to stop this podcast while you finish watching the video for panel number 49 from The Great Migration of the Negro by Jacob Lawrence, go ahead and do that now. Okay, let's move along to a mural. This is Dream of a Sunday Afternoon in Alameda Park. So this connects to this theme of socio-political art because this is an expansive dream. It's a history. It's a variety of figures um, who have existed throughout the history of Mexico from indigenous times to modern times, all placed in the same location, if you will. And this location has significance. And also, if you kind of like a Where's Waldo kind of hunt situation, there is someone we've seen. Actually, there's two people we've seen um, in the art we've looked at this year. There's Frida Kahlo, who we're going to focus on, and you'll find that easily. But if you look closely, um, you can find Sorwana, who we looked at when we took a look at colonial American art. So you might want to take a look at that. So a little information about this mural. This mural was commissioned for a hotel. And this mural is fresco, so it is actually attached to the wall it was originally created in. Um, that hotel suffered incredible damage during an earthquake, but miraculously, the mural wasn't damaged. And so after um, the earthquake was over, they didn't try to save the hotel. They basically removed the wall that this mural was attached to, and they put it inside of a museum. So that's where it exists today. So let's take a look at this work. So this work can be interpreted as a dream or a nightmare. You don't have to take notes yet. We'll just kind of give like an overview of this. So we have hundreds of characters, as I've mentioned, from Mexican history, 400 years of Mexican history, in fact. And what they're doing is they're all taking a collective stroll through Mexico City's largest park. There's colorful balloons. There's people who are dressed impeccably um, we have vendors, we have diverse wares, but there's also kind of like a dark side to this, this crowd scene. Um, it's almost like a dark nightmare. There seems to be a confrontation between an indigenous family and a police officer. And I believe it's the left side of the panel. Sorry, no, it's the right side of the panel. We have a man shooting into the face of someone who's being trampled by a horse in the midst of like a brawl. We have a sinister skeleton smiling at the viewer in the center. So what, what kind of dream is this? Typically when someone says that something is a dream and you're walking in a park, those are all positive calming associations. We don't necessarily have that based on the evidence we have here. Now in terms of dreams, Diego Rivera was connected to the surrealist movement, um, like his wife Frida Kahlo. So 
sometimes we can perceive dreams not necessarily as I think the way we do as Americans where dreams are things we aspire to do or accomplish think of dreams more in the state of revealing truth and revealing things from the subconscious kind of like what we talked about when um I told you guys about surrealism when you looked up Frida Kahlo's artwork okay now you can scroll down to the box that says a surreal quartet and we're going to be focusing on the figures at the center of this painting who you'll find some familiar figures in here so in the spirit of surrealism, this is a complex dream. For surrealists, um, like Salvador Dali, who we didn't study, but a very famous surrealist many people are familiar with, dreams should be at the center of artistic subject matter. Dreams are personal. Dreams are strange. And this gave artists the incredible ability to juxtapose subjects um, unrelated in manner. So like if you look at Dali's painting, he has like clocks and ants and they don't necessarily belong together, but you can kind of read into them for their symbolism. Like maybe time is memory. Um, ants contribute to decay. So it just unlocks a lot of personal meaning that really allows the audience to connect to art in a way that goes beyond logic and reason. It allows you to really create a strong like emotional, psychological connection to an artwork. So Rivera never officially joined the Surrealist, but he spent a lot of time with Surrealist artists. It was definitely the circle that he ran in, and we know he had a relationship with Frida Kahlo, so that connection is quite clear. So he uses a Surrealist approach in this painting as he kind of stitches together a scene where he puts together a variety of disconnected historical people, including Hernán Cortés, the Spanish conqueror who initiated the fall of the Aztec Empire, Sorwana, as I mentioned, um, as a hint, they're way on the left if you want to zoom in later. As you know, she's a nun. Um, she's a female who was considered to be Mexico's most intelligent woman, most notable writer. Um, Diego Rivera as well was aligned with um, Communist Party in Mexico. So like Frida Kahlo, he also has this interest in kind of like gender equity. And so you will see him sometimes, not always, because there's another side of Diego Rivera where I think that would be a reason maybe that he would include Sorwana, kind of elevate the status of women. But I'm not going to say he's, he's a fan of females. Diego Rivera was kind of an interesting character if you do some research into him. But anyways, not to get off track. Um, and then we have Porfirio Diaz, whose dictatorship at the turn of the 20th century inspires the Mexican Revolution. So quite a cast of characters. But perhaps the most striking group is in the center, because we know anything put in the center is typically what's important, what's to be emphasized. And we have a quartet featuring, featuring a child version of Rivera, who you can see looks like kind of like a chubby boy holding an umbrella um, with a hat. We have the artist Frida Kahlo. The printmaker and draftsman Jose Guadalupe Posada in La Catrina. Catrina in Mexico is a nickname at the early 20th century for an elegant upper class woman who's dressed in European clothing. So if you look at this skeleton, um, she has a beautiful like feathered hat on with flowers. The brim of her hat is so large. It's like an umbrella. Um... She has a fine dress on. She has a belt buckle that I think has an Aztec logo on it. She's, she's dressed in a way that suggests she has an elevated status. So 
This character became very famous in Posada's La Calavera de la Catrina, which translates to the Katrina skeleton in 1913. Here, the renowned printmaker depicted La Katrina as a skeleton in order to create a visual way to critique the Mexican elite. So in a dream of a Sunday afternoon in Alameda Central Park, Rivera reproduces the original Posada print and adds an elaborate boa. So if you look at the boa up close, um, it's got like pastel looking feathers. But if you look at the right side, you can see that there's a snake head with its tongue extended. And on the other side, you can see like the end of the snake. And so this is intended to be reminiscent of the feathered Mesoamerican serpent god Quetzalcoatl um, around her neck. So a lot of references here. La Catrina unites two great Mexican artists in this mural. She holds Rivera's right hand. So you can see him as a little boy. He's very easy to find. And then she's held um, in her other arm by Posada. So you can see that she is connected to two artists, which I think is significant. Though Posada died in obscurity in 1913, artists later really gravitated toward his work and they brought attention to his work. And he did become a very significant influence on Mexican muralists and artists like Diego Rivera. So the fourth character in this so-called surreal quartet is Frida Kahlo. We can't ignore her. Um, she stands behind the childlike version of Diego. Um, they were married at this time. One hand is protectively on his shoulder in a very like maternal fashion. And then she also holds an object in her hand, which might seem kind of strange, but we'll kind of unpack that in a second. She's holding a yin and a yang object. So in Chinese philosophy, yin and yang refers to opposites that exist, yet they need to exist together as interdependent forces. So it's like the force. The good can't exist without the bad because they bring balance to each other. So you can also think of inter interdependent forces like uh, things like day and night. Within the name of this concept is perhaps the most fundamental duality that we have in humanity. Yin translates to female and yang represents male. So thus, this Chinese symbol becomes a metaphor for Rivera and Kahlo's complex relationship. And I think you can make that judgment because Kahlo has her arm on Diego Rivera and she's holding that yin and that yang um, in the space that exists between them. And so viewing this visually, there has to be an important association of as to why she would be holding it there. So they married, they separated, they got back together. He cheated on her. She took him back. They were political comrades. They painted each other frequently in their portraits their double portraits often reflect like whatever state their relationship is at the moment. Uh, we saw with the two Fridas that their relationship wasn't really doing too well because we see so much like pain and so much reflected about her inner psyche in that painting. So you really can kind of trace the course of their own personal history through the timing of their artworks that they created. And so a lot of times they play on each other's stature meaning that Diego Rivera was a tall, big, stocky guy. He's, he's a big man. If you remember from like the marriage, um, I wish I included that in the slides here, from the two Fridas, there is an image of them holding hands together, kind of like a tentative grasp. Um, it was a wedding portrait, but Frida Kahlo is much smaller than Diego Rivera. 
And so we know that size always has a connection to influence or emphasis or power. Um, Kahlo was ill at the time that Diego Rivera worked on this mural. And some art historians believe that his diminished size and his youthful age and like returning to the state of being a child was a way for Diego Rivera to reflect on his feelings of helplessness. And so it's kind of interesting how they make all those personal connections um, within that. In light of this, we can really appreciate all the details and all of the thought and all the expertise that goes into this painting. Um, stepping away from the center, the mural reads like a text. There's like a chronolo chronology that emerges when you view this painting. The left side of the composition highlights the conquest and colonization of Mexico. You'll find Sor Juan in there. The fight for independence and the revolution occupied the majority of the central space. And then modern achievements fill the right. For some art historians, the central area is a snapshot of bourgeois life in 1895. Because at this time, refined ladies and gentlemen would put on their Sunday best um, under the watchful eye of Porfirio Diaz in his plumed military garb. One gets a sense of the inequality that stirred average Mexicans to overthrow their dictator and initiate the Mexican Revolution, which lasted from 1910 until 1920. In light of this, we can appreciate this idea of, is this a dream? Is this a nightmare? Um, the balloons kind of suggest, um, you know, like a playfulness and a happiness but then when you see it kind of, if you take a closer look at who's in the painting and what people are doing, um, the brightness of the balloons just don't seem to complement the rest of the painting. On the right side of the composition, we have a bandstand, we have um, battles of the revolution, we have workers' flags, um, we have things that feel most connected to reality. And more often than not, you have to think about histories in general. Histories are typically written from the vantage point from those who won and those who are successful, but that presents an incomplete story. So although Dream of a Sunday Afternoon in Alameda Central Park is confusing, um, there's positive associations and you look closer and find negative ones, um, it makes you think about power, it makes you think about relationships, it makes you think about a complicated, complex history. But what Rivera does give us in this painting is he gives us the pieces that typically history will edit out. The story of the indigenous, the story of the masses. Um, he finds a place for all of those things in this grand narrative. The artist reminds the viewer that the struggles and the glories of four centuries of Mexican history are a product of participation from all members of all strata of society. And you can really find someone from all strata of society within this painting. Okay, your last piece to work on is there's some mural details. I have a great video from Sotheby's and I like it because they have very high quality views and they point out some really important figures in the painting, which I think will help you like build